Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Before we get started this week, I just wanted to let you know that we'll be taking a break from the podcast after this episode goes live. We'll be back for one very special episode in early June, though. That episode will feature Walt Harrington, who will be at Ashland University in Ohio for the River Teeth Nonfiction Conference in late May. There's still time to sign up for the conference if you're interested. Once that episode airs, we'll be on break until September. That will give you all, our dedicated listeners, plenty of time to get caught up on all the episodes you haven't gotten to listen to yet. Now, let's get to this week's show. This week on the podcast, I talk with Mac McClelland. McClelland is an award-winning journalist who has written for publications like Time Magazine, The New York Times, and Mother Jones. She's reported from every region in the United States. She's gone undercover in industry and the sex trade. She's reported internationally from places like Thailand, Haiti, Australia, Burma, Uganda, Turkey, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. McClellan has won awards from the Society of Professional Journalists, the Hillman Foundation, the Online News Association, the Society of Environmental Journalists, and the Association for Women in Communications. Her book, For Us, Surrender is Out of the Question, was a finalist for the 2011 Dayton Literary Peace Prize. She's been nominated for two National Magazine Awards for feature writing, and her work has been anthologized in Best American Magazine Writing, Best American Non-Required Reading, and Best Business Writing. She's currently working on a new book titled Irritable Hearts, which focuses on post-traumatic stress disorder in reporters who have covered traumatic events. Mac, thanks for joining Gangry the Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Uh, can we talk about report, uh, reporting in general in your reporting career? Um, you've done a lot already, uh, despite being such a young age. Um, how did you How did you get started? You're laughing at that, but how did you get started? You well, are, I'm not you're, that young. Well, um, you're younger than me, so. 34. <laughs> but, um, uh, how did I get started? I started as an intern at Mother Jones. Um I went to grad school for nonfiction writing, not because that was a real plan, but just because I, I had no plans. You know, I had like most liberal arts majors in the early 2000s, I feel like, or maybe now. I just, I was an English major and I had no idea what I was going to do. And I had really good grades. So I figured I could go to grad school for free. And so I did. Um, and that was like, that, that was the extent of my plans. And then I ended up going to Thailand um, to check out this refugee situation that I had been following for years and was really interested in. And when I did that, that was when I was like, oh, my God, I have to write a book about this because the situation is crazy. And the people that I met were amazing and just they deserved to have a book written about them. So I applied for an internship at Mother Jones to try to make publishing contacts. And that's so it was all kind of like a weird convoluted accident almost sort of. 
So um, I, I'm imagining you didn't take a lot of reporting classes, uh, at least as an undergrad. Um, did you take reporting classes in grad school? No, I took zero in both. So my my formal, my educational training in, in journalism is non-existent. I didn't even take, you know, journalism as like a intro elective or anything like that. I never took it at all. Did you... Um, I'm trying to, did, did, it doesn't seem as though, uh, there are a lot of really good reporters out there who haven't gone that route. Um, and I'm just curious kind of how you learned the ropes in terms of, of, of interviewing people and making contacts with people. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of started doing that? Yeah, it definitely helped to be working at a magazine. I didn't, again, I didn't apply for the internship at Mother Jones in order to be a reporter or to learn how to be a reporter. I did it to make contacts that would lead me to eventually be able to write this book. This book was the only thing that mattered. It was like my only goal. So I had no intention of becoming a reporter or learning about how to become a reporter. And in terms of interviewing people, you know, I had been in Thailand and I had lived with the people that I wanted to write the book about, these refugees, and I had interviewed them, you know, just because I was curious. And I'd taken lots and lots of notes and some tapes and stuff, just sort of for my personal edification at that time. So I wasn't following any guidelines for how to interview people. I was just like having human conversations, you know, which when you get down to it, most of the time is what you end up doing anyway, in even as a professional full-time fancy journalist. So I, uh, I just, I picked up a lot of stuff. There are a lot of brilliant people working at Mother Jones. There were then and there still are now. And I learned a lot from just being around them and working with them, obviously. So I was, I was there for years um, before I got the reporting job. And then I was there for years again as a reporter. And at, you know, at this time, I don't think I would have gotten that internship because the applications for interns these days. I mean, I was way underqualified. Like most of the interns at Mother Jones now, they speak like three languages and they've already worked at NPR and PBS and they're they're super, super driven, motivated, you know, journalism. I came in like right at the right time where a person like me who had basically zero qualifications <laughs> managed to get um that I mean not zero. I went to college and I was into I was I was a pretty good writer and so they took me sort of on those skills and on the fact that they needed somebody at the last second. They didn't actually take me as I wasn't in their first round of picks, but they ended up needing someone in like a with like a week's notice and they asked me if I could do it and moved to California and I was like, "Yep, yeah, I'm on my way." So I I lucked out, really. Did you know you always wanted to be a writer? No. Um, again, I went to grad school, I mean, don't a lot of people just go to grad school because they have no idea what the hell else they're doing, and the only thing they know how to do is go to school. I mean, that's basically, (laughs) that was basically (laughs) my situation. I liked writing. I had taken some creative writing classes and written the worst crap in the world as an undergrad, you know, and then my uh, boyfriend at the time, he 
was also going to grad school because he was a scientist. So he had like a real reason for going to grad school. And I was like, oh, you know what? We could apply to grad schools together. And I'm sure that I could go to grad school and, and get a, a good offer because, you know, I'm a nerd and I have really good grades. And it, I mean, it's just the whole thing was very half-assed. I mean, I didn't, I was, I didn't have like a five-year plan. I didn't have any plan. I was just kind of like going with the flow. And it just happened to work really well. You uh, you went to Thailand and you wrote wrote there and, and you've been all over pretty much the world writing and, and a lot of times it's these human rights type stories uh, this kind of advocacy journalism what draws you to that type of uh, story? Um, I don't know. I just I find people very interesting and I find the situations that people find themselves in very interesting. You know, not by their own fault and how they react in those situations I hadn't you know when I went to Thailand I wasn't like oh this will be a great career move or something like that I just really wanted to go and see what was going on and meet these people and then the situation you, you know which was that basically all these people were refugees from a genocide was insane and I couldn't believe that it was so unknown to, and that sounds very naive because there's a million horrible things going on in countries that we don't know about, right? But this was, this seemed to me to be kind of like, you know, at that time there were a lot of commercials about awareness for Darfur, for example. And, you know, this was a sort of a similar tragedy. It was an ethnic group that was being pursued by their own government. It was extremely violent. There was tons of documentation. So it wasn't just like some refugees talking about something bad that had happened. They had pictures. They had videos, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I, as an educated person who went to rallies for Darfur and things like, you know, I was this kind of person who would know about that sort of thing. I had never heard about it. And the people, again, they were just, the guys that I lived with, they were almost all guys, the refugees that I lived with. They were just, they were just amazing. And their reaction to the situation that they were in was fascinating to me. And I don't know why, if, if that's why I ended up doing more stories sort of like that. Um, or if that is just interesting to me in general, but I mean, I could sort of care less about daily politics, mm -hmm. for example. I have zero interest in that. Like there's not, I don't know, there's just not enough human in it. You just had a story um, uh, relatively recently in the New York Times uh, magazine about uh, a refugee camp uh, for Syrian refugees, and that was in, in Turkey? Yeah. Um, what was that like uh, heading over there uh, and, and writing about that that camp? Well, I they sort of, you know, refugee. That's where I started was with refugees, and I've been, you know, in various refugee situations since then. And I actually I'm in the middle of writing a book, and when they offered me that assignment, I was I actually had to get an extension on my book which I wasn't supposed to do, but I just, I could not say no. I told, I was like, you guys have made me an offer that I can't refuse, you know, like a, a refugee situation that that's, that's like so close to my heart. So I, um, you know, I went to Turkey and it was surprising in that the camps there are the nicest refugee camps on earth. Probably. I haven't heard anyone contest that uh, claim that there's better refugee camp somewhere, they're amazing. And they, 
um, still have unhappy refugees because the problem with the refugee camp, well, there's a lot of problems with the refugee camp, but it's not necessarily that the conditions are horrible. And that is a huge problem in most refugee camps. You know, there's not enough food. There's not enough things to do. There's, there's just not enough anything. There's not enough water. There's not enough shelter, very basic needs. But even in a really nice refugee camp, which this Turkish camp was, it turns out that, you know, people still hate being in a refugee camp because people don't want to be warehoused. It's no way to live. I mean, just imagine if you just lived in a camp for like seven years and that, that you just lose sort of all that time in your life. So the interesting thing about the Turkish camps is that they sort of, they show almost better than anything that refugee camps in and of themselves are not a good solution. Because if you are looking at a shitty refugee camp, can I swear? I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. should have asked. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're looking at a horrific refugee camp and you're like, oh, these people have no food and they have no water. Yeah, of course people hate living there. That's awful. But when you look at a refugee camp where all your needs are met, you know, I mean, they don't, they're not like drowning in fancy chocolates or anything, but they, they have enough to eat and they have electricity, they have plumbing, they have hot water, things that are unheard of in most refugee camp situations. They have debit cards that the government gives them to go grocery shopping and things like this. They have freedom of movement. They can go in and out of the camps as they like. That also is very rare. So even when you have this really amazing setup, people still hate it. People still hate being refugees. And so the thing that was, I hadn't expected going, going in there, I hadn't expected to find this gorgeous, sparkling model of refugee camp. But when I did, that's, you know, that's what I learned. And I was, it was, it was very interesting because I hadn't gone in there with any expectations. And then it, it sort of ended up showing me that it doesn't, it doesn't matter how nice you make a refugee camp. It's the fact that people are encamped mm -hmm. that is the problem. And that's, it's very hard on them. Yeah. Is there any good way to do that? I mean, if if Turkey if Turkey still has unhappy people in these camps, is there a way where you can do that that doesn't result in unhappiness? Well, not so much in camps. That's so the UNHCR, and that was another thing that surprised me because I was interviewing the director of um, you know Turkey, whatever Turkish operations for UNHCR, and she was saying, you know, you really don't want it camp people if you can avoid it. And I couldn't believe it because, you know, UNHCR is in charge basically of keeping millions of people in camps, right? So when she was like, this is not ideal, you don't want to put people in camps. I was surprised to hear her say that. And she was saying, you know, there are better options, mostly what people would prefer, humanitarians who work on the ground, what they would prefer is to integrate those populations into their host populations. But I mean, that's like asking the Americans to just take a million Mexicans who are having a tough time or fleeing a war and just letting them live in their country and just letting them have jobs. You can imagine how well that would go over. Right. So nationalism has basically, you know, we have tighter borders now than we used to. So that's led to increased 
refugee situations and fewer options for them. Because before, you know, back in the day, you would just wander into another country and it wasn't a matter of like all these papers and passports and electronic scanning and all this stuff and you could work and whatever. But our borders are so tight now and we police them so strictly that, you know, the Syrians, they don't have that many choices. And so the UNHCR has actually been sort of begging other countries, especially in Europe, to take some of them and let them live. Because the problem with being, another problem with being in a camp is that if you were going to do it for five months or something, whatever, but the average amount of time that they spend is at least 12 years. So that's a crazy amount of time to just like be doing nothing and have no job, not practicing any skills, you know? So you would, you would hope that people could go live and start a life, say, in Sweden for a few years, but nobody wants to take them. They're not getting much of a, a reaction yet. And it's, if you think about that, you know, asking, asking the world to sort of open up its borders to refugee situations, that's what would really solve it. But you can, I mean, you know, just saying that out loud, mm -hmm. it sounds impossible and absurd and like no governments would ever do that basically, you know? Yeah. Has, has spending time in refugee camps um, and with refugees and with people who are kind of at, I guess, at their wits end, has that opened your eyes as a reporter to maybe other populations, even here in the States, where people are, are not refugees, but kind of just living it out and they don't know what to do? Um, yeah, I feel like my awareness of that has always been pretty high. And I don't know if spending time with, you know, refugees are sort of the most disenfranchised of the disenfranchised because they don't even have citizenship. So, I mean, they do, but in a country that they can't go to. So their options are so limited. But in a way, you know, disenfranchised is disenfranchised. If you have a whole system working against you, you know, there are a lot of populations, like you said, here in the United States who could also say that they are not getting the things that they need to live a life, like a real life. And that would be just as valid of a complaint for some people here as it is for the Syrians in other nations. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's it, it, at some point it kind of turns into like a pissing contest. Like, who's more disenfranchised? Or like, you know, who's worse off? But the fact is there's a lot of people, yeah, right. everywhere. It's not just refugees who are not getting the support that they need from host governments or their own governments to sort of survive and not just survive but thrive in any kind of real fulfilling life, you know? Yeah. How, how do you... um when it comes to coming up with story ideas, how how do you come up with them? Um, do you, you have editors calling you and asking you to do stories? Do you have ideas that you're pitching to places? And, and if so, how do you come up with how do you, When do you know you have a story you want to do? Uh, it just sort of depends. Like that refugee story was the Times Magazine's idea, uh, not mine. Although you know, I, I obviously I was like, that's a great idea. Right. <laughs> we should definitely do that. But that was their idea. Um, so it's sort of, it's sort of half and half lately. Again, I haven't been taking very many assignments because I've been working on this book, you know, which is the final final is due in like a couple weeks. So, um, I've taken huge amounts of time off to get that done. But in terms of 
whether I know that it's something I want to do or not. That's a good question. I don't know. You just sort of know, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of, I guess it's kind of like going on a date, you know, like you're on a date with someone and you can make a list of their attributes or the challenges that dating them might involve. But in the end, it's just sort of like, do you feel, you know, like in your bones that you want to invest yourself in that? And that's sort of, that's sort of how I, I guess I go with a gut check. Mm-hmm. And you really invest yourself because a lot of your stories are very immersive. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and why you choose to go that route? Um, yeah. I don't really I don't really know why. It just sort of uh, – it's, it's never like part of my plan, you know. But like the fact is when you're in a reporting situation for a long time – so for example, you know, I was in Ohio doing a story for a month. And I knew the one of my sources, I had known her from college, um, and I was following sort of her life and her husband's life, and I didn't really know. I'd met him like once. I didn't really know him. But even when you don't know people, if you're someplace for a month or even two weeks, that's it's a long time, and you as a person – I mean, you're a professional, but you're also a person. And so you have reactions to what's going on. You have thoughts about what's happening around you, you know? And I guess, like, if you know, if you were writing for a newspaper, like a strict newspaper, you would leave all that out of it. But I, you know, work for magazines. And I start, when I started working at Mother Jones, when I started doing features for them, they never they didn't say anything about it either way. And they, you know, I would have an assignment, I would go do it, I would write it. And when I wrote it, it would often have sort of these very personal observations and things like that in it. And it was, you know, my editor's call to take it or not take it. Mm -hmm. And you'd have to ask her, you'd have to ask her actually why she, why she let it ride. But, um, yeah, they, they encouraged that after after a while and it sort of you know ended up being kind of like a theme in the pieces not again not really purposefully but that's just the way it worked out and they were like yeah okay this is fine you know they never said you have to stop doing this oh my god you know like get some professional distance for christ's sake (laughs) Um, but they could have and i'm sure that there are editors who would have Mm -hmm. but the you know mother jones the magazine has a very strong voice and they're not afraid of voice and they're not afraid of writers with voice. And so I think they were just like, okay, this is this particular writer's voice and we're just going to, you know, we're going to let it stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of your work reminds me of Ted Conover, um, especially the warehouse piece. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that piece and kind of how that came about? Yeah. So that was, that was sort of a combination of, um, my and my editor's idea, the idea to actually go into the warehouse and work there, that was their idea. But we had been talking about doing something about the particular sector of online shopping and shipping and things like that. Because again, when I was in Ohio, I had pretty accidentally ended up in one of these warehouses. I was checking in with one of my ex-girlfriends and she worked in one of these warehouses and she was a manager and she was like, Oh, come visit me at work. I'll show you around, whatever. And I, when I got there, I was horrified. Mm -hmm. I was like, this place is awful. Like the, not just the actual physicality of the job, which was also pretty awful, 
but just the spirit of it. She fired several people right in front of me while I was there. And one of them she fired because he'd gone to the bathroom too many times. And the other person she'd fired because he'd asked someone where they were from. And there was no talking aloud on the floor. And I was like, what, you know, what kind of place is it? They weren't, you know, they were just like standing there taping up boxes. And the guy was like, where are you from? And they were like, you're fired. And I was like, okay. So, and it was all temporary workers and they were using huge, she just had like files of papers on her desk that were applications from temporary workers and they're completely disposable. Mm-hmm. So she was like, I can fire every single person in here right now and have every single one of them replaced because the economy is so bad. You know, people need jobs and so they'll take this crappy job for crappy pay and they'll get treated like shit. And she was like, I could replace everyone in here in a day, you know, within one shift. So everybody was totally disposable. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, well, this is actually a huge sector. And it turns out that that's, that temporary work mentality is not limited to the warehouse that she was working in, which by the way, was owned by, I think it was the largest uh, third-party logistics. It was like largest or second largest in the country. Mm-hmm. So that's how they ran their warehouses, and that's how a lot of other people run their warehouses. So we wanted to do something about it because that sector is growing. Online retail, you know, that's huge. And so more and more people are going to be working these kinds of jobs. So we'd been talking about, me and my editors have been talking about what kind of story we wanted to do. And we had only just started talking about it when they pulled me in their office and we were like, you, we want you to get a job. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And that was that. You know, we talked about it for a few minutes and then I, they were like, go try to find one and let us know how it goes. How did you find one? Oh, you know, on the internet, I was looking around um, for, but, you know, for legal reasons, it was the Mother Jones lawyers call that or their suggestion that they shouldn't name the company that I was working for. But we basically we picked, a, you know, a company. We were like, OK, these people do a lot of online commerce. Let's see if I can find a job. And I also called my ex-girlfriend, you know, who managed mm-hmm. one of these centers for a different company. But, you know, it's all kind of the same. And I was like do you have any tips on, you know, the best way for me to get hired into this thing and whatever. So I just did some research and I checked the classifieds online and I found one in a different state. Actually, I found a warehouse that was hiring in a different state. And so I, you know, I got on a plane and went and applied for a job and passed my drug test. Thank God. And then, uh, and that was it. Did, did your friend wonder why you wanted to know how to get hired by one of those companies? My ex? Yeah, yeah. She knew. Oh, she knew. And she didn't care. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't lying to right. her. You know, I was just like, hey, man, <laughs> you know, is there, do you have any tips? And she had warned me that I was, you know, basically just going to have to prove that I can read, um, not have been to prison, and pass a drug test. And that's it. Because so many bodies go through there, you know, they are constantly hiring and firing because the smallest offense just gets you right back out the door. So there's so many people coming and going, the application process, you know, it takes like, I don't know, probably an hour, maybe like an hour and a half or something from when I walked in the door to when the guy shook my hand and gave me a job. So she, she was, she was fine to help as long as I left her name out of it so she wouldn't get fired, you know? The first time I the first time I heard about your story, you were talking about it on Radio Lab 
And um, and I just remember thinking as you're describing the job, wondering how did she ever take notes even at the end of the day without just falling over dead from from the job itself? Yeah, it was um, – well, I took notes at lunch. So we had these tiny little lunches. They're half an hour, but they're not really half an hour because you have to run – you know, this warehouse is – just enormous. <laughs> the radio lab guys did the math. What did he say? It was like seven football fields or something. Okay. I don't know. So you have to, your lunchtime includes getting from the back of the warehouse where you're working to the front, which, and then you have to go through metal detectors to make sure you're not stealing anything. So even maybe your lunch ends up actually being like 16 minutes or something. But in those 16 minutes, you know, I had a notebook that I kept in the lunchroom because you're not allowed to take anything with you on the floor. And I would just take notes. And sometimes the people around me, you know, I would be have having conversations with the people around me at the same time. And some of them would be like, oh, you're taking notes. And I was like, yeah. And nobody asked me why. Mm -hmm. They didn't care, you know. And if I, even if I would have told them, I wouldn't have told them because I, I wouldn't want anyone else to be in a position to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. But they, I mean, they wouldn't have cared. Those people didn't have any loyalty to that company, the temporary workers anyway. You know, they didn't have any loyalty to that company because the company didn't have any loyalty to them. So they still worked very hard. They worked so hard, even though they were being treated so poorly and not paid that much money. But nobody there was like a champion for our corporate overlords who clearly thought we were disposable, you know. So I just took notes. Um, at any moments that I could. And yeah, then when I went home, I was really tired, but you know how, like I was basically working out for 10 hours a day. And you know how sometimes when you, when you're overtired, you're sort of just like jacked up and you know, you should be exhausted, but instead you feel sort of like nervous and awake and whatever. And I was just going back to my sad hotel room by myself. So (laughs) I had plenty of time to decompress and take notes and take a bath and, you know, kind of the same as anywhere. Mm -hmm. Did that story end up turning out how you thought it would going in or did something, did anything surprise you? It was a million times worse than I thought it was going to be actually. Um, I mean, I knew that it was going to be not awesome. I didn't think it was going to be like the best job in the world. Again, I'd been in one of these warehouses before. And so I saw that the culture of it was kind of ugly, you know, like I saw how people were treated and I was like, okay, but it was actually, you know, I was in that first warehouse in Ohio for like half an hour or something. And so to be working 10 hour shifts, you know, the, the offenses just add up, but you just see so much more. It was all on the same sort of, uh, same sort of general idea of just people totally not caring about the people who were working for them. But when you're there for that many hours at a time, you just see so many examples, you know, every five minutes, it's like another thing. And it's like, Oh my God. So it actually, it was worse than I had thought it was going to be, which surprised me because I'd already thought it was going to be pretty bad. Right. Uh, We're going to take a short break right now. Um, We'll be back uh, with more from Mac McClellan in just a moment. Uh, This is Gangry the Podcast. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. 
and they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash jdm. This is Gangry the Podcast. We're back with Mac McClelland, uh, an award-winning journalist who's written for a number of national publications and is now working on her second book. Uh, Mac, can you talk a, l- a little bit about the book that you've, you've mentioned a couple times so far? Uh, what, what is it about and how did it come about, I guess? Uh, it's about PTSD. So it's about post-traumatic stress disorder. And it is, so I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder in 2010. And it's about uh, not only sort of my personal experience with it, but also at the same time that I was in treatment for PTSD, I was doing stories about PTSD. I was doing this one giant feature in particular um, for Mother Jones about veterans, not about veterans with PTSD, but focusing on their families and the impact that it had on their families and the people around them. So the book is sort of follows, you know, my own experience with being diagnosed and then starting to get treatment and what that entails, as well as learning more about it, not just through research and through my own therapist and things like that, but as I was reporting stories about it at the same time. So that's kind of the scope of it. Have you been able to pinpoint, was there one moment that has kind of caused this PTSD for you as a reporter, or was it um, maybe repeatedly going into areas where, or going, that are traumatic? Yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting question, because the thing about PTSD is that you, people do try to pinpoint it Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of reasons, but you can only sort of what can you how how sure can you be that something that happened to you when you were 29 had you know your reaction to it had nothing to do with something that happened to you when you were 17 or something you know so they like to say that there are risk factors for people um getting PTSD and some of those are previous trauma like if you had a really traumatizing childhood or something like that um and these other risk factors. But then when it comes down to it, even people who don't have any of those risk factors also end up getting PTSD sometimes. So there's no, you can sort of, in retrospect, you can be like, oh, you know what? I bet it was this thing when you were five. It could have had something to do with this and that. But at the same time, you have people who've never had anything happen to them. Basically, (laughs) the bottom line is anybody can get PTSD. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, if you were, serially abused or molested as a young person or if you were mugged you know a lot of people um get ptsd after very serious car accidents actually which is a thing that i didn't know before but that's a huge that's a huge cause 
in this country for PTSD is a really, really serious car wreck, things like that, you, you know, you can't say if it was only that moment or if it was a combination of that moment and your entire upbringing, you know, but in, uh, I guess legally, because for insurance purposes, I had to be, I had to go through all these assessments where they were trying to figure out if it was, you know, this, if it was work, if it was work related and if there was one moment that you could point to or not. And they decided that it was, and it was, um, when I was in Haiti the first time, actually, I had this very, very intense day where I dissociated, which is where you sort of lose track of your own, like you don't feel like you're in your own body at all. And it was the first time that it ever happened to me in my life. And it's a bad sign actually for um, a persistent PTSD. If you dissociate during whatever the event is, you have higher chances of struggling with getting better for a long time. And so that sort of my first weekend in Haiti was declared. And it, I mean, that seemed clear to me too. When I arrived in Haiti, I was tired because I'd been working for four months straight on the Deepwater Horizon oil spill mm-hmm. in the, the Gulf. But I was still like a normal person. And then a couple days later, just like that, I wasn't anymore. I was just like a, I like, I was a constantly crying, very, very heavily like dangerous amounts of drinking total nervous breakdown person just like that like in the blink of an eye wow and that was right after the that was after the hur- the earthquake in Haiti yeah yeah um i'm like i'm curious the thing i'm curious about is with PTSD is so often we only talk about it in relation to soldiers who are returning from war yeah and that's it um at least here and and it seems like there are so many other people who you know who suffer from this and you know in the country and, and it can be from any number of things. Yeah, well, that's actually that's the point of the whole book, basically, because when I was diagnosed, I was you know I was like that's ridiculous. Of course, I don't have PTSD. That's for soldiers, you know, like that is a thing that you get when you go to war and a bunch of bad things happen and then you come back and you have issues or whatever. So I thought that it made no sense and that it completely didn't apply to me. And I was super resistant to the diagnosis for that reason. I was like, I don't deserve to have PTSD. You know, I didn't have to go to war and kill people or have people trying to kill me. And then as I got more into it and did more research about it, it's actually more, you're right, in this country, if someone says PTSD, you're picturing like an old grizzled nom guy, mm-hmm. right? right? Like at right. a bar, like drinking and he like doesn't get along with other people or something. But it's actually more often a civilian's disorder than a soldier's disorder. So the number of civilians in this country that have PTSD is higher than the number of soldiers who have it. And you would never know that from the way that it's talked about. And so this was all a huge discovery to me. And it was, you know, a very personal kind of discovery, obviously, because I was going through it. But it turns out that going to war is actually not the highest um, cause of PTSD among Americans. Yeah, I know uh, there are a lot of childhood cancer survivors who suffer from PTSD as well um, a lot of times just from having gone through that as a young kid. Uh, so 
Yeah, I'm sure. Was, rape, was, actually, rape is one of the right, rape definitely. and sexual abuse and sexual assault. The that is, um, that's at the top. And then again, as I said, car accidents. I read this study one time about snake bite victims. That like I can't remember the number. I don't have my notes in front of me, but it's something like 27 percent or something of venomous snake bite survivors end up with PTSD. I mean, it's all kinds. Wow. It can be all kinds of even sort of the most random, I mean, venomous snake bite. That's not a thing that you would ever think of, but right. apparently people really struggle with right. mental illness after that sometimes. Right. Was this, um, was, was this book, um, was it difficult to write for you? Um, it was and it wasn't like the thing that I liked about it was I had almost all the reporting already done. So I could just sort of lock myself in my office and just work on it for, you know, a year or a year. Well, I can't remember how long it was. But I was just sort of like holed up, you know, and I could just sort of like write it out. It wasn't – in the case, my first book had so much – this book too has a lot of research in it. But my first book had so much research in it that, you know, it had nothing to do with me. It was about like <laughs> – Burmese, British colonial history and, and things like that. And it was, it was just a very different kind of process. This one I talk, you know, that first book was not about me and this mm -hmm. book is, and I've never written a book. You mentioned that I, you know, end up talking about like my own immersion and a lot of features and stuff, but I never wrote a feature like about myself, mm -hmm. right. you know? So I've never written a book about myself and having to sit down and do it, it was, it was nice because I was just like, okay, it's just like me and me and this story and I'm just going to work it out. At the same time, it was extremely painful and horrible and awful. And like, <laughs> I cried a lot and, you know, I had a lot of really bad days while I was doing it. And it's really tough. It was super, super tough. And I still have, even though it's done now, and we're just doing like the very final touches and fact checking and thing like that. I still have moments where I'm like, am I really going to put this like information into the world? I mean, I sound like a crazy person because I, you know, I am a crazy person and I have, you know, I have an emotional disorder and it's very fucking serious and people don't really know how serious it is. And now I'm going to tell them. And I, sometimes I just, I have moments where I'm like, are you really doing this? Like, it, it seems like kind of a terrible idea, but I think that it will be useful to a lot of other people who went through the exact same thing of feeling like they were the only people on earth, you know, to suffer in the way that they suffered and to feel like they didn't deserve to suffer. Right. So that's yeah. what keeps me going. It and and also rewriting it all makes you relive it as well, which oh, is yeah. always a wonderful. I mean, word. I had yeah. I mean, I used to work. I just moved from San Francisco recently, but I used to work in this office building, which was a collection of writers' offices, basically. So it's called the Grotto, and I would have to close my door, you know, and I would just be like, I would have to take breaks, long breaks, sometimes where I would just be like pacing and sobbing and I was like man if somebody came in here right now but yeah like it's it was a it was a super intense really painful but at the same time you know sort of liberating process it's not like once I felt like oh now I've written this down and now I'm free of it I mean I wish it was that simple it's not quite that simple but at the same time you know sort of putting it to words and and getting the whole thing organized like on paper 
Um, yeah, it it was awful, but in a good way, I guess. What what's the book called, and and who's publishing it, and when when can we expect it? Uh, it's called Irritable Hearts, and it will come out. I either in January or March, I'm not sure of next year. I don't think that they've decided yet. Um, my publisher is a new imprint of Macmillan called Flatiron Books, and this will be like their it's their first list, basically. So So that's exciting. It is exciting. My editor used to be the executive editor at the Penguin Press, and that actually is who my original contract was with. And then he was recruited. Um, to head up this new label and he, he took me with him. So, and he's amazing and I love him and he's been, you know, he's just been great throughout the process. So yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited and I'm terrified. <laughs> well, I'm definitely looking forward to reading it when it comes out and, uh, and, and any other work you have coming out soon. So Mac, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've been talking to Mac McClellan. McClelland is an award-winning journalist who has written for Time Magazine, Mother Jones, and the New York Times. She's working on a new book titled Irritable Hearts, which looks at post-traumatic stress disorder in journalists who cover traumatic events. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter, at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. Technical help was offered by Steve Cease. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.